going to start our look at Jeremiah in chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. This is page 632 of your Pew Bible. It's not the most common text in the book. There are quite a few famous texts in the book of Jeremiah. It's a huge book. It's a very difficult read if you just try to go cover to cover. And part of that is a little need for the history of what's going on around it. We're going to try to touch on that. But we're going to start here in this place where even though knowing the history would help you know what's going on then, I don't think it's so far away from where we are now. And while I'm not going to shy away from pointing out the state of our civilization, as I just did a few moments ago, that in fact perverts are running rampant and attacking, that is going after children, the real issue that we want to face as a congregation is not what are we going to do about our country? The real issue is what are we going to do about our church? And when I say our church, I do mean St. Paul, but I also mean the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And I also mean the Lutheran Church as a general idea in the world. And I also mean the Christian Church as God's church in the world, which includes Baptists and Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and even some Pentecostals who believe that Jesus Christ is risen for Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. If you look at the state of the church in all of those circles I just mentioned, there's no question that we're not what we were. No question. Nobody has seen grand success and a development of greater piety and a passing on of the faith so that we multiply rather than decrease. Like that language from Jeremiah 29 again, we have decreased rather than multiplied. And this is not because of any shortage of money that we've thrown at it, nor any shortage of declaring that we're going to go do evangelism or mission or any such thing. So why? And Jeremiah 5 is the only answer. I mean, there's more in the Bible, but like, it's always this answer. It's always this answer. Jeremiah 5, 1 says this. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man. One who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and speak to them, for they will know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. 
I think it speaks for itself, but I'll, I'll say a little more. I don't mean to say there's not a single one of you in here who, do, who believes. I think you're all believers. I think we are all believers. I think we all trust Jesus. I think we all want him to be our example. I think we want lives that seek his light rather than darkness. But we are a people of unclean lips dwelling amongst a people of unclean lips. And the tide has washed us way farther than we can imagine. And so if we were to run to and fro throughout this city of Rockford, just talking to people and asking them what they know about the Bible, it would be hard to find someone who knows much. And that's the problem. That's why all the other stuff's going on. If we all knew what the scripture said, not just us as St. Paul, but us as a people, it wouldn't be the problem that it is. Let me throw you a really hard one here, St. Paul. As this came to me from one of your own, a adult graduate of St. Paul Lutheran School, who pointed out to me that he's the only one in his class who still goes to church. And as far as he can know, one of the only in any of the classes that graduated around him that still goes to church. What happened? Now we can look back and say, well, we did it all right. We were doing the right thing. Something else happened. Or we can say, you know what? We should probably just repent. Even if we don't know. We should probably just recognize that we have been too duped by this present age into thinking something about this present age is good when it is evil. And as a result, our children have not cared about our faith. If all of us just assume that, even if all your kids go to church, assume that anyway. We're all part of the same boat here. Now we can begin to have some hope. Now we can begin to believe that God will look on us with mercy and care. Because as a result of our repentance, he has forgiveness and nothing but. But when we look upon his judgment on us and we say, well, it wasn't me. Well, all we got is what Jeremiah has to give to Jerusalem, which is harsher and harsher words. Chapter 5, that part I just read, is in the first major section of the book. All right, so uh, Jeremiah opens with chapter 1 is sort of his call. It's a summary. We're going to look at that. But then there's three major sections that are all about Judah. They're all about this little kingdom where Jerusalem is the capital that's about to be done and go into exile. We've spent a lot of time here, St. Paul, learning about that exile. So I'm not going to go into detail on what that means at this moment. Okay, But this is all about right before that happens, during the reigns of four different kings. Josiah, his son Jehoiakim, his son Jehoiachin, and then Jehoiakim's brother, Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. He's the one there when the walls are burned to the ground and torn apart by Nebuchadnezzar. All of chapter 2 through 44 is three sections dealing with that reality. First, there's six sermons that are spoken to Josiah. Then there are special predictions about Babylon and its destructive power into which he shoves predictions about the Messiah and his saving power. And then finally, chapter 34 through 44, there are predictions dealing with Zedekiah and Jehoiachin specifically. 
out of order, interestingly. It's thematically arranged. Finally, in the last chapters, 46 through 51, there are words about Babylon and what's going to happen to it someday. And then the last chapter, 52, is a historical epilogue. All right, so if you didn't catch all that, that's all fine. Chapter 5, though, again, is in that first section that's the preaching that's given to Judah about the impending judgment that will come while Josiah is king. All right, I'm going to remind you about Josiah in just a minute, but first, let's just look at his name. Go to chapter 1. This is page 627 in your pew Bible, and I'm going to read all these names as they show up in verses 1 through 3, where it gives you the whole history of the book. Everything that's going to happen around these prophecies is kind of detailed here in short. You would need to go to Kings and Chronicles to find all this information, and I'll try to give us a little bit of it here in just a moment. And it says, the words of Jeremiah, that's our prophet, the son of Hilkiah, we don't really know who he is, but we do know he's, what it says next, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Remember how the priests in Israel were given their own cities? So they all lived in these special cities planted throughout the land. And then from time to time, they'd be called to Jerusalem to serve at the temple. And then they would go back to their cities where where they lived. So he was from this city called Anathoth. And as the son of a priest, that means not only is he a prophet, he's not automatically that, that's a special call, but he is a priest. So Jeremiah is a priest. So the words of Jeremiah to whom, verse 2, the word of Jesus, the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, all right. You might remember Jehoiakim. We called that guy J1 way, way back. You remember that? Okay. And then his son, Jehoiachin, J2. Uh, And so again, Josiah, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then the uncle, Zedekiah, is the reigning kings at the very end of of Jerusalem and Judah's life. Josiah is, however, one of the best kings that Jerusalem ever had. As the grandson of Manasseh, the worst king who Jerusalem ever had, at least according to what he achieved, because during his lifetime, God said, because of what you did, I'm going to destroy the city. And no matter what happens next, no matter how much they repent, I'm still going to destroy the city. Josiah makes that stay away for a while. By his repentance, by his seeking of the word of God, the destruction is held off, even though it's inevitably going to come. Josiah is the one who, he begins reigning very young, but he immediately seeks Jesus. He begins to tear down the high places and remove the statuary of the idols. And after he's been doing that for years, for years, while they're cleaning the temple, they're remodeling some stuff back in a dusty corner, One of the priests finds this old book, an old scroll, and he opens it and he reads it and his eyes get all big. He's like, oh my goodness, it's Moses. We haven't seen this in a generation because they had actually lost Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They they had lost it. 
They had not read it. They didn't even know it was there. And he runs to Josiah with this and he begins to read it to him. And Josiah rends his garments and says, We're, we need to repent and we need to put this back in order. And then he does. And the people do it with him. There's a massive reformation. The entire country is transformed to, to take care of the festivals in a better way, it says, than even in the days of Solomon. It's against that that chapter 5 is spoken, though. Huh. You see this? So Josiah is trying with all his heart. He's faithful. He believes it. There's faithful people. They believe it. But the whole is just lips. It's just words. And their hearts are far, far from him. So Josiah, he goes to rest with his fathers. He dies a peaceful death. His son Jehoiakim immediately begins putting into practice the ways of Manasseh again. And probably because he was weak. Probably because the people wanted it and he just gave them what they wanted. And it isn't but a few years before the king of Babylon has come down and has made him a vassal. That is, he has told him that I will destroy you unless you serve me. And Jehoiakim's like, sure, I'll serve you. Here's some gold. Yes, you can take the best of my people. Have you seen this young man, Daniel? He's fantastically smart. You should put him in school. Take him with you. And off Nebuchadnezzar goes with a first round of exile captives and a bunch of the money out of the temple. Jehoiakim says, I'll serve you. In fact, he swears an oath that I will serve you, king of Babylon, until my dying day. And then he turns around and he makes an alliance with Moab and Edom and Egypt. Let's get rid of Babylon. Now, there's a little bit of uh, a question as to how and when he dies, but what happens is this rebellion is taking place, and he does die as the king of Babylon is coming down to take the city again, so that his son, who's but a young boy, Jehoiachin, that's J2, right, he becomes king right as he's going to face Babylon attacking him, and he basically just submits. He's like, no problem, I submit. And he is then taken captive himself back to Babylon with his uncle, Zedekiah, put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar, swearing oaths of fealty and all these many things. Then Zedekiah, thinking highly of himself, will rebel a little while later. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar is done with the whole thing. And he comes down and he levels the city. He tears down the temple. He raises the fields so that basically Judah becomes a wasteland. A, a place where there's nothing but shepherds and nothing but shepherds for many, many years, at least 70 years, until Jerusalem is rebuilt again under Nehemiah and Ezra at the word of Cyrus, king of Persia. Babylon has to fall for all of that even to take place. So there's the story of it all, right? And now what I want us to do again is put ourselves somewhere in this story, not so much as America, the great empire that loved God, because I'm not sure we ever were, but as the Christian church, the Christian church that trusts that nations are going to rise and fall, but we are going to endure forever because the word of the Lord, the word of our God endures forever. Because our baptisms are baptisms into the death of Christ, which means we will rise from the dead on the last day, which means we can let this life fall away and leave it. We don't need it. We can stand strong and confess against all liars and all perjurers and all perverts what the truth of God is without fear. We can know for certain that our faith is so wonderful that we would rather have our children believe it than be wealthy. That's who we are. But we're watching an American Christianity at the very least that doesn't believe that. Not firmly, 
Not strongly, not enough to repent. Enough to vote Republican, maybe, but not enough to repent. And see, that's the problem. Again, vote if you want to. It's kind of your duty. Vote for who you think is right. Pro-life's a good thing. But don't for a minute think that that's our problem. Our problem is that we think we can do it. Our problem is that we think the church is built on us. And we've lost, in the midst of that, a deep love for Scripture. Now, I'm going to tell a little story here. I don't mean to call anybody out whatsoever other than myself. There was a point in my life a couple years ago where I realized that I knew more about the history of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings than I knew about First and Second Kings. And I am ashamed. I am ashamed that that ever happened. I never even knew. I never thought twice about it. It was just life. I was a Christian. I was a preacher. You heard me. I was here with you. But somehow, what was unnecessary had become greater than what was necessary. And again, that's our issue. That's what we need to repent of. That's what, as soon as we just acknowledge it, God's already here with all the mercy in the world saying, don't worry, I got you. Little St. Paul Church, you're an ark. You're an ark in the flood. Call all the animals in and shut the door and trust in me. I'll see you through. You'll land on the other side safe and sound. And not just you, St. Paul, but the whole Christian church on earth. Will we put our money, not actually, no, I don't mean money, our hearts on that. Yeah. And that's what Jeremiah is in the Bible to call us to in every age. In every age. Especially this one, I think it might seem. All right, so with that in mind, what I want to do here is, yes, uh, look at chapter 1, which is going to give us a total overview of all the message of Jeremiah again. Some of these themes I've already talked about are going to come back, but it's going to at least give you some introduction to his flavor, his flavor. Jeremiah is a hard read. He's, he's not like butterflies and daffodils. It's, it is destruction is coming, repent. That, that is Jeremiah. All right, so um, first we get his call, verse 4 of chapter 1, where it says, The word of the Lord, remember, that's Jesus. The word of Jesus came to me saying, and look how beautiful these words are. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now those are words to Jeremiah about Jeremiah. Because all prophecies about Jesus, that means those are words to Jesus about Jesus. And that should make sense to us, yes. But then because you feast upon the body and blood of Jesus, making you as the church his body, then these are words about you too. Huh? Everything said about Jesus is yours, not by virtue of your godhood, but by virtue of your baptism into the man who is God. So, I mean, highlight these words, read them again, put them somewhere in your life. Before God made you in your mother's womb, he knew you specifically. Before you were born, he consecrated you specifically. That means he set you apart. 
He chose you to be his own. He appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, that doesn't mean you get to tell the future. It means you get to hear what God said and say it again in truth. We just did it when we confessed the creed together. Anytime you read the Bible out loud, you're prophesying. And I would encourage you to make it a goal and an aim. Can you do this? It'd take a couple years, but but a nice little goal. Can you find a way to quote the Bible in your life without anybody knowing it? Can you imagine trying this as a game? How many people can you say Bible verses to just in conversation without anybody knowing? And maybe they know if they know their Bible, but otherwise, would they even know, right? Would they even know? Don't cast your pearls before swine. That one goes a long way. Yeah, that one goes a long way. God has chosen you. Don't miss that. God has chosen you. Verse five. Then verse six. Then I said, look at, look at how his, his human fleshly heart responds. No, 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 not me. <laughs> ah, Lord God, Lord Jesus. Behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Eh, Moses said the same thing. You remember that? And I'm sure, as I just said it a moment ago, make it this game. Try to speak the Bible. Your heart's like, oh, I can't do that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So you're not, you're not in bad company. Jeremiah felt the same way. Yeah. And in some ways, there's a really good honesty here. There is. There's a humility there. That's good. But it's also it's a fleshly humility that we want to repent of because it's turning itself against what God says. God says, I call you out of darkness into light that you might give an answer for the hope that is within you. And we go, I don't know if I can do that. Yes, you can. Because he set you apart before you were born to do just that. He did. And he brought you to this church at this time so that this congregation can be a voice in the wilderness of this age. So that we can speak to those around us hope and truth so that they can come out of darkness into the same light. And because of that promise, not because of what we're going to do, because of that promise, you can be assured that we're going to sail through this age like those in an ark. And honestly, any Christian church can say that about themselves. Why we don't? Well, again, that's what we got to repent of. Like literally, that's what we got to repent of. We should be saying this. We should be certain that no matter how bad the fire gets, we're going to lift up our heads and not wallow in the muck with all those who have no hope. Huh? So God says back to him, verse 7, Jesus said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is never going to be liked by just about anybody in Jerusalem. Because he keeps telling them how bad it's going to get if they don't repent. By the end of this entire story, he's not only been put in prison, he's also been taken out of prison and thrown down into a well where he sinks like up to his chest or his neck in the muck at the bottom of the well. And they throw a piece of bread down to him every single day. and He has to stay there for days. I'm sure at that point he was not really feeling like these words came true. I am with you to deliver you. And yet... Somebody amongst the king's council went to the king and said, I want Jeremiah out. The king listened. God was with him to deliver him. And Jeremiah did speak what he needed to speak. In fact, he found, we won't look directly at this text, but it's in another place in the book. He found that when he tried not to, that the word of God was like a fire in his stomach. 
He couldn't hold it in. He had to say it. Yeah. And I guarantee you that as you read the Bible, as you pray the Psalms, as you imbibe the wisdom of Solomon, that's going to be who you are. He's going to be with you. He's going to make you speak. More and more, your mind is going to be sharpened by the word of God. And if you're in a situation where you're like, oh, I don't know if I can say that, you're going to be like, I have to. Does that mean you're going to be rude and mean and obnoxious? No, that's not what I'm saying. No. But it does mean you're not going to be able to stand silent while lies are spoken, especially lies about God. Verse 9, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. Similar thing happens to Jeremiah. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And again, these words are to Jeremiah. They are to Jesus. They are therefore to you individually, members of his body, the church, that we have been set over nations and kingdoms. All of us are worried about our nation, but we've been set over the nation because the nation will rise and the nation will fall, but the kingdom of Jesus is going to last forever. And so we are here at times of catastrophe, maybe to pluck up, to break down, to say this is destroyed because this was built on bad foundations. And the scriptures are clear what real bad foundations are. We talked about sexual immorality. We talked about covetousness earlier. Yes? Built on bad foundations. But it's not just that. Christians aren't here just to say, don't do it that way. Although we are here to say that. But we're also here to build and to plant. Mm. Tangent. Small one. One of our... uh, groups within the church, a a study team has spent about three years now trying to figure out what we need most done to this facility. And they have just recently figured out not only what we need most is to deal with our parking situation, but they've done all the work. So they have a quote of how much it will cost right now to fix the parking lot, Add, I believe it's something like 15 to 25 new spaces, as well as deal with a water runoff problem, which will enable us in the future should we want to build a bigger facility here. Maybe something like a cathedral with a library attached. I've pitched that idea before. It's a big dream. That's something that's coming our way. The conversation about where that money comes from. And you want to kind of have a gut check? Would you believe that the money we, use, we got from selling the old building And the money to build the parking lot are like, ooh, they're right there. And you trade that beautiful old sanctuary for some pavement. But what are we here to do? We're here to build. Build a building? No, no, no. Build our hearts in Christ with the word of God. And maybe you remember how, back before our our little schism, that parking lot was a major problem. Yeah. And if things continue the way they've been going now, it will become a wonderful major problem again as more and more people find the pure word of God taught here, preached here. And forget that taught, preached, confessed by you here. That's what's going to bring our friends and neighbors in. So why do I bring that up? To gut check you, make you think about it, plant the seed for later. That conversation will happen later. No one's made a decision. We've just done the research. Uh, But see this text again. Why are we here? Not to give up, 
Not to give up. Uh, to believe there's a future coming that's good for the church, no matter what else happens to the nations as they come and go. Yeah. Verse 11, And the word of Jesus came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then Jesus said to me, you've seen well. I'm watching over my word to perform it. I had to look this one up. Why does an almond branch mean he's watching? In the area of Israel, the almond tree is the first to bud in spring. And so what this means is he's not going to take very long to do what he's saying. And so in the history here, again, this punishment Jerusalem's about to have is going to happen within that generation. That's the point. But it's also like St. Peter says, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. And so for all of us, as we seek first the kingdom of God, as we ask knowing that we shall receive, and as we believe the resurrection of the dead is coming, we should get from this how ready God is to act and how quickly he can change things in a moment. Now, I would like to say more, but we're almost out of time. So we're going to leave the burning pot of the north. That's what comes next. That's all about Babylon. And let's just look for a moment again at Jeremiah 29. A text we heard read a few moments ago. This is a text where some Christians will tell you, you can't believe is about you. And I think they are just so absolutely dead wrong. I don't like the way it's laid out in my Bible for me to look at real fast. So I'm going to go here, but it is on page 656 in your pew Bible. They'll tell you, you can't believe this because it's about the exiles of Jerusalem in Judah. What they don't seem to realize is the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah were Christians before Christ came. And that it's ultimately about Christ, not about them, like I've said several times now. And since it's about Christ, therefore it's about you because you're a Christian. The church in every time and every place has the same king, the same Lord, the same hope, and the same commission which is to cling fast to his word, to deny what the false prophets say, and to trust in passing that word on generation by generation. And so these verses, beginning at verse 5, what he says to us, I want us as St. Paul to be a place where we believe this is about us. What are we to do? What are we to be about? Build houses and live in them. You don't have to build a new one, but live in your house. That's a good work. It's a good work to live in your house. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Do you have to raise tomatoes? Don't try to live on tomatoes, by the way. That won't go well. Yeah, it doesn't mean you have to just go do it yourself. But the idea is farming's a good work, right? Working at a supermarket's good work. Making trade with others so that they can eat as well. It's a good work. Provide. Seek to provide for you and yours. This is what we're to be about. Take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. If you would join me in prayer this week, I would like you to pray for this, that we as St. Paul would multiply by childbearing, that the young families which are coming into our church, and there are a few, that they would be blessed beyond measure, that we would get rid of this idea that having two is enough. How can you say you have enough children? It's like saying there's too many flowers. It's a strange spirit they've given us. I'm not asking you to face anything specifically. I'm asking you to pray for our future, that we would be a people who see the value of children rather than those who these days want to sell them and groom them into all manner of perversity. Yeah. And in this way, verse 7, building houses, having families, 
sharing food. Verse seven, this is how you seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That's where, look, vote for a politician you think is a good person. Go get involved in a school board meeting, for goodness sakes. Talk to the police officers and support them. Certainly pray for them. Man, their lives are tough right now, right? Seek the welfare of the city in which you dwell. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. That's more important than anything you could actually do, right? Because in its welfare, you will find this welfare. Because, again, now look at verse 11. Jesus knows the plans I have for you, declares Jesus. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. You will call and I will hear. Verse 13, you will seek and you will find. Does that sound like Jesus? It's exactly what he says. Seek and you will find. When you seek me with your heart, I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations into which I have driven you. If we would like to see better days in the churches of Jesus Christ in America, this is how it's going to happen. By believing we stand on the brink because of our unfaithfulness and that that's true in every generation. But that seeking repentance, knowing we deserve it and saying, Jesus, you're the only way. Make my house a faithful house. As for me and mine, we shall serve the Christ. When that happens, as that happens, because God chose you to have that happen, because he put his word in your lips and in your heart, because he's making you by the Holy Spirit to believe these things, it is going to bear fruit and you will see survival, survival. More than that, you will see thriving. You will see thriving. I've had to wrestle with this idea about, you know, what, what would it be like to be a pastor if gas goes to $10, what about 15 Because you know what's going to happen with that. The food supply is going to have a lot of trouble. So what are we going to do when those things happen? I've had to wrestle with this, but I've come to this conclusion above all others. The church will be better off if it happens because God let it happen so that the church could be better off. Because that's the way it always is. That's the way it always is. The, the country might not be better off. Life might really suck but we will know our god we will trust our god and i guarantee you you will see his hand at work in your life and it already is open your bible check out a little of chapter one again this week read some of chapter five this week check out chapter 29 this week in jeremiah i guarantee you it will open your heart and will cause you to see your god at work right where you are in the name of jesus amen